edition of Turned Out a Punk. I'm your host, Damien Abraham. Once again, I'm bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved in punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, huge one, one of the greatest to ever do it, Penelope Spheris is on the show. You may know her from directing Wayne's World. You may know her as the producer, director, everything of the Decline uh, series of films, the Decline of Western Civilization series of films. You may know her from We Sold Our Souls to Rock and Roll. You may know her from the movie Black. She, there's so many things you could know her from. She is a legend. More on that in one second. But first, if you want to get in touch with me, head over to the email address, turnedoutapunkpodcast at gmail.com. Turnedoutapunkpodcast at gmail.com. That is run by my brother and show producer and guest Booker extraordinaire. I owe you for this one, Tristan. Thank you so much for this. I love you, buddy. Um, and he will get the message to me and, uh, we can communicate that way. He also runs our Facebook or sorry, our Facebook page and our, uh, Instagram page. Both of those are found at turned out a punk on those platforms. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter. I am at left for Damien. If you want to support the show, the best way to support the show is just by telling all your friends about what we do here, letting everyone know that you know that you enjoy this podcast each and every episode uh, that we do. And uh, you can also support the show by subscribing to it and rating it on your podcast platform of choice or by heading over to patreon.com slash turned out of punk. That is where you find Turn Out of Punk Footnotes, um, which is a incredibly in-depth podcast. Most of those, man, one, one that I'm putting up tomorrow is three hours of Chris and I dissecting, Chris O'Toole and I dissecting each and every episode of Turned Out of Punk. And thank you to everyone that does head over to Patreon and do that. I really, really appreciate that. Speaking of appreciation, I have to show a lot of appreciation to the fine folks at Vans who came aboard a few years ago with this podcast and said, Damien, do what you do. Just, uh, you know, don't, uh, do it as much out of your own pocket. They gave me a little bit of money to cover the costs here and I got to thank them for doing that. It makes things a lot easier with this podcast. Um, and that is it on to today's show today on the show. When Tristan told me that we booked this guest, I, I, my, my heart skipped a beat. Penelope Spheris is, I tell her, she, I think she is my favorite filmmaker of all time. And like, obviously for any punk fan, Decline of Western Civilization Part 1 is essential viewing, um, you know, but I think just as like a, from a filmmaking standpoint, it's such an incredible documentary. Like to me, we talk about all this on the episode, so I don't want to, you know, reiterate too much, but I don't know, it just hits a sweet spot between uh, overly kind of uh, hidden directors and then overly in front of the camera directors. Um, it just, I don't know, I, I love her her style. Also, Wayne's World. Wayne's World, go back and watch that movie. They do a lot of interesting stuff with it. And she, uh, if you read her accounts of making that movie, it's really her fighting against everyone to try and make that movie. And that movie is a classic. It's a classic. Little Rascals, you know, uh, Beverly Hillbillies I even enjoyed, you know. But really, it's these decline movies that... I think have defined her legacy. And that certainly is what she talks about, uh, on this episode. And in particular decline of Western civilization, you know, one, two is a classic as well. And then three, three is the one. Oh my gosh. If you have not seen decline of Western civilization, part three, it will, it will tear your heart out. It is a, a hard watch of a movie, but I think kind of essential viewing for, I don't know, everyone. <laughs> yeah. I really, Oh, I, I watched it again. Uh, recently before I did the interview and it is really, uh, 
stuck with me, you know, and it is a heavy film. Also, uh, we do talk about in this interview, a film called we sold our souls for rock and roll, which is a, a documentary that I always thought it came out because we used to have it at the video store I worked at. And, um, apparently it never did actually come out. I say to her falsely that I rented it in the nineties. Um, I, I, I didn't actually see it in the nineties. It was in the two thousands when I was working at a video store, we had it at the video store and, uh, that's where I saw it. And it must've been a bootleg. I, <laughs> I was thinking it was officially released for years, but fear not in, you know, 2020 or whenever you're listening to this thing, there are ways of accessing this kind of information. And if you go into a search engine on the internet and type in Penelope Spheris, we sold our souls for rock and roll. I think you might be able to find a way to watch it. And, uh, I, I recommend watching it. I, I say, you know, it's a, you know, I, I really kind of like, uh, you know, I, I think it's an incredible movie, but it's not, Once again, a light watch. I think it's something that in the present day, a lot of the people featured in it, I'm sure really, really regret saying what they said in that film. I would hope they do because a lot of people don't come out looking, uh, looking so good. And when you watch that thing, I rarely, really recommend watching it. To me, it's almost like a decline in Western civilization part four. Uh, spoiler, she does talk about there being a decline in Western civilization part four kind of in the works. So I will let you listen to that <laughs> later on. But for me, this will always be kind of like a continuation of the series, you know? Um, anyway, I'm not going to ramble on anymore. Sit back, relax, and enjoy Penelope Spheris on Turned Out a Punk. Penelope, thank you so much for coming on the show. Well, thank you for having me, Damien. Well, as I was just kind of telling you briefly off air, you are an unbelievably huge influence on me, on on everyone in punk rock, obviously, but also as a filmmaker, like I really do think you are, push comes a shove, probably, you know, one of, if not my favorite filmmaker of all time, just because of the influence you had on the way I approach making stuff myself, the way I look at movies. So it's a, it's a real honor to talk to you. Well, thank you. Gosh, that was a really uh, nice uh, intro there. (laughs) Well, well, I assure you, the punishment has just begun. There's going to be a lot more niceties to come. Um, (laughs) I got to start it off the way they all start off, which is, Penelope, how'd you get into punk? Do you remember the first time you ever came across the genre? Yeah, I was uh, returning some film equipment uh, in uh, Hollywood here at a company called Cine Video, and um, I've been making... um, uh, music videos for various bands for the record companies. I had this company called Rock and Reel, and around 1973 or four, I started the company. And then around 1976 or seven, no six, something like that. Um, some dude was standing there at the counter with me, and he goes, "Have you ever heard of the Sex Pistols?" And I go, "I'm not into music anymore. It's all like Doobie Brothers and disco." So. I don't listen to the radio. He goes, check out the Sex Pistols. So I did. And that's kind of what turned my head, you know. Mm -hmm. And you had been in L.A. for, you know, a number of years at this point. Um, Were you into the stuff like the seeds and all that Sunset Strip stuff that was happening, obviously, prior to to this? Well, you're talking about the psychedelic bands? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was into music when I was fucking not. Can I swear? Yeah, please. Uh, when I was flipping 10 years old, you no, know, you definitely swear. Oh. When I say, please definitely swear. I, I played a band <laughs> called, 
Uh, sorry, I, pl- I played a band called Fucked Up, so swearing oh, yeah, is yeah, yeah. completely right. acceptable. I knew that. I should I should have remembered that. Yeah, but I mean, no, dude, I started with, you know, Chuck Berry back then. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So I was into music from, like, early, early on. And I it, music was my escape, you know? It was, like, I had a really shitty upbringing, you know, uh, uh, four kids living in a trailer with a mother that got married nine times total, believe it or not. And so, I, you know, and they were all alcoholics and everybody was getting the shit beat out of them all the time. And so I was like always using music as my escape. And I had been very, very close to rock and roll for my whole life up until when this disco thing happened. And then I just couldn't take it, you know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, but, you know, that I, I when I got into punk, it was like my whole world changed, you know, um, and it was I was I was older than the kids in the first decline, you know. Mm-hmm. But um, basically, I found the same sort of, um, I don't know, just uh, relief uh, and uh, that I actually found my identity, you know. Absolutely. Well, you know, it's and when you're, you know, getting into punk rock at this point in 76, it's such a transitional time. It feels like for that kind of L.A. punk scene where you have that Rodney's English disco, Zolar X, Imperial Dog scene kind of kind of dying off and the stuff that you would ultimately end up covering in decline kind of emerging. What were the what was kind of the local scene like when you first kind of got into this stuff? I actually used to hang out at, uh, yeah, on the strip and I, yeah, I saw the psychedelic bands there. There was a place down on the pier in Venice called the Cheetah and I saw Blue Cheer there. Oh, wow. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. they're a little bit loud. And um, and then uh, I was at Rodney's Disco just because that was the thing to do back then. You know, I mean, <laughs> yeah. you wore four inch platform New York Dolls type uh, shoes and went down to the disco. It was a little tiny room and it had mirrors all around. So if you were too uh, blasted, you would like walk right into the mirror, you know. <laughs> <laughs> What did you think of like the bands that were playing there? Like, did you ever see Zola Rex or, or any of those types of bands? Yeah, those guys, the, the, yeah, I know what you're talking about. They, they have, um, they look like the Martians or something. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yes. That's the band. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I saw all those bands and, you know, it was, it was uh, just something you did back then, you know, but the cool thing was when punk came along, it just flipped everything on its butt, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, um, things changed pretty radically at that point. I stopped going to those traditional clubs and just went to the underground clubs like um, uh, The Mask and Blackies and um, all these other clubs. My cat's making noise, I'm sorry. No problem. Um, And um, places where normal people didn't even know about, you know? Absolutely. So what were some of the first shows or first bands you remember kind of seeing that were happening around you at that time? Like, I mean, like part of this new wave of stuff. Oh, what was the last thing you said? Like Like part of this new wave of kind of stuff that was happening. Oh, see, now, if you listen to Claude Bessie in The First Decline, he would say new wave does not exist. (laughs) Sorry, Um, I didn't mean. Yeah, I meant sort of like the the new frontier. Yeah, the new frontier. There we go. That's better. Well, I mean, I was listening to the bands that were in the, um, I mean, I was going to the shows, um, uh, you know, you get a, you get a bill down at the Starwood where you've got the germs and um, 
alley cats and fear and it was uh, lots of lots of different underground bands and you know like i wish i would have shot the um, weirdos and screamers and plugs and and those kind of bands back then but i didn't have very much money to make the first decline so i just had to shoot whoever was playing on the night that i had equipment checked out from the record companies <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like that movie kind of informs, you know, every rock movie documentary that kind of comes after it. But like, what were your influences on capturing music going into that film? Well, I mean, there's certain way to shoot music. You know, if you're shooting, if you're shooting to playback, which for the most part, uh, I was shooting to playback for the record companies. But I also actually would shoot um, like concerts for them. You know, I shot, <laughs> I shot Foghat, you know, in <laughs> a, a live, um, a live uh, uh, concert. And it was funny because I was in the back of the car with them. They wanted to see the Sunset Strip. I, I was in the back of a taxi with, and uh, the taxi driver said, are you guys in a band? And they said, yeah, he goes, What's the name of it? And they, and Dave or somebody uh, says uh, uh, Fog Hat. And the driver who didn't hear very well said, um, "Oh, Frog Fat. That's a good name." <laughs> From Frog Fat to Fear. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but um, anyway, yeah, I would. I mean, shooting music for me. By the time I got to doing the Decline movies, I I knew how to shoot music with my eyes closed because. You know, you have to, you have to shoot all the rehearsals. You got to convince the band, don't change your clothes, keep the same clothes on, you know, keep your same guitar, blah, blah. And that way it'll all match. And then I'll shoot your rehearsals. And then when the crowd gets here, I'll shoot the big wide shots with, with, you know, the band on, on stage and the crowd in the foreground, you know? So, Mm. yeah, I mean, I had it down by that time. You mentioned earlier, like not being into music and you felt like, you know, music was kind of over prior to hearing that Sex Pistols. What what was the point you felt that music died for you during that? Because it's like, you know, people that have been on the show, you know, that from this era talk about, you know, Manson and how much that changed kind of the complexion of the city. But I was just wondering yeah. on a personal level, what was it for you? Well, Manson was what, 1969? Yeah. And that was that was. um Definitely a turning point in everybody's attitude here, especially in LA. Um, I was pregnant with my daughter at the time. And so it was especially uh, disturbing what happened with him, uh, them. Um, But I would say um, probably mid seventies, you know, uh, 75, 76, 77 uh, was around the time when, I decided to just uh, get back into music because um, the the club's opening up here in LA and, and yeah, mostly because of Malcolm McLaren and the Sex Pistols, you know. Um, did you ever see The Runaways? Yeah, my sister dated um, one of, my sister's uh, a lesbiana and she uh, dated, um, what the heck, Sandy. Oh, wow, uh, that's amazing. Sandy West. Yeah. And um Sandy's moved on now to a different dimension, but um, the um, I knew, yeah, I saw the Runaways a lot, and I hung out with Joan Jett when she was theoretically producing the Germs album. <laughs> she, she she was laid out a lot of the times. She was kind of loaded. <laughs> yeah, 
when that scene, you know, was going on in the mass, there's like a lot of talk about how people, once again, who have been on the show and, and were there talk about how that was such a, a, a convergence within Los Angeles where you had people all kind of coming together from all different economic stratas. You had people that were just rock and roll people mixing with art people. Oh. Well, not at the mask though, really, Damien. Because no. It, no, it was a secret. It was almost like a secret society that there were people that were, um, that, that knew each other. It was really underground, the original mask. And you know what? It wasn't very big. It was like, um, I mean, I'm in a real estate now, so I think in terms of square footage, if you had to think about the square footage of the mask, I'm going to guess because it was a upstairs and uh, you had to go downstairs in the basement. I'm going to guess it was, you know, seven, eight hundred square feet tops, you know, mm -hmm. so you couldn't get that many people in there. And then there was uh, Brendan at the door and he would be very um, uh, pushy about who he let in and who he didn't let in, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, and my boyfriend at the time, uh, he just passed away right now, boohoo. Uh, and uh, his name was Bob Biggs, and he had Slash Records and Slash Magazine. And um, I remember um, he would do these performances. I know I'm going off topic here. But no, please. This is amazing. These, uh, he would do these um, uh, art performances because he really was a closet artist. He should have been doing art instead of everything else that he was doing, like blow. Uh, anyway, um, but he would get a, a cow or a goat uh, and uh, sit down in a chair and have a uh, naked, ah, fuck, a naked stripper walking around um, and, and uh, with the goat on a leash, believe it or not. <laughs> And it was the most ridiculous thing imaginable. And I always, when I think of the mask, I think about Bob Biggs uh, dragging a cow down the stairs. I was like, God damn, dude, think of something. You think this is art? <laughs> God, you got your head up your ass. Oh, I, I snuck into that building, you know, about five or six years ago just to see the mask um, downstairs. And I do not know how you would navigate that staircase with livestock. That is. I know. <laughs> I know. Oh, you went, you could get in there. I can't believe it. Well, it's, it's above it is actually the production company, at least at the time that made RuPaul's drag race. And I was, uh, oh, really? yeah. So I was down there for, you know, shooting something and huh. we sweet talked to security guard to let us go downstairs and look. And it had all oh, wow. the graffiti is, still there, but was the graffiti there. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. I don't, I'm sure it got painted. Oh, didn't it get painted over at one point? And so I guess it's a different set of graffiti or maybe it's for a movie that they had redone. I don't know, but, but I have on the, uh, I'm not trying to sell uh, DVDs. I promise you, but on the extras for the decline uh, DVDs, there's um, a tour that Brendan gave of the mask and I was shooting him walking around as he talked about it. So the original graffiti can be seen there. So that must be it then. Yeah. And, and also believe me, I will do a hard sell for those DVDs because everyone should already <laughs> own them by now because they are <laughs> mandatory viewing all of them, but uh... not to be a downer, but here's the thing. I got an email the other day from uh, a guy, um, I get a lot of thank you emails, which is very gratifying for, for the decline movies and for suburbia and uh, sometimes for Wayne's world, <laughs> but, um, but you know, the ones that really mean a lot to me are the, are suburbia and decline. And I got this email from this guy in Australia named Carl Hannon, Colin Hannon. And he said he was diagnosed with a, um, 
a disease where he wasn't going to live very long. And he had three kids, I think he said three or four, and they all ran around saying chicken butt and um, eat my fuck and all these things that came as lines from my movie <laughs> and movies. And he said he the one thing he really wanted to do before he died was to thank me for my movies. I just started crying. Oh yeah. That's, that's heavy. That is definitely very heavy. Isn't it heavy? Yeah. I mean, and I'm, so I've been writing back and forth to him trying to keep him alive. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it's your movies really gave a uh, visual to the Sonics, you know, for, and so mm -hmm. much, and, but also like that scene and that style of punk rock, is is really what took hold like more than what was going on in new york at the same time like la hardcore is kind of like that's you know moshing slamming like that's that's that is punk rock for people so yeah the thrash the thrash was definitely born out here everybody likes to argue over you know where a certain movement was born and you know we can't argue that grunge was born in you know the northwest of of america okay yeah but everybody likes to argue about where hardcore was born or where thrash was born or where punk was born, you know, but basically it doesn't really matter. Does it? You just listen to the music. It doesn't matter where it was born. Absolutely. And one, and that's the thing is like around 74, you have this thing that seems to happen all over the world where you have radio Birdman and the saints in Australia. At the same time you have Zolorex and Imperial dogs and the nerves in, uh, in Los Angeles. And then you have the stuff that's going on in Cleveland with rock from the tombs and even stuff going on in Hamilton and outside of Toronto. Toronto and you know so it feels like yeah it was a global energy that kind of coalesced around 76 77 into punk rock and then ultimately into hardcore I heard there was a, you sound like an encyclopedia but um oh so congratulations I'm a nerd I'm a nerd you're, but you started me on this journey so you're to blame <laughs> uh, I heard there was a lot of uh, punks in Montreal and in um um uh, Calgary is that true yeah absolutely yeah it, it it is uh you know Montreal especially like Quebec it was huge yeah. in the 90s it was all those California you know SoCal kind of pop punk type bands would do biggest I, I found in Montreal and Quebec when they come on the oh, show and talk about it that's great that's great well see the thing about punk I think is that you know, real true punk, you don't run around, you know, capitalizing on and trying to try and make money. And, and it's more just a lifestyle and, and you're living it as opposed to exploiting it and selling out to big business and shit like that, you know? So because of that, I think it, it it's, it's kind of, I used to say it's the termites in the woodwork of America, you know, cause termites are in there and they're very powerful but you don't hear them or see them you know what i mean absolutely and, no that's, that's the way i think about about a true punks you know but when you get these posers with their stupid uh hair salon mohawks you know <laughs> it's like, walk away dude you know well it's funny because i was watching decline three again over the weekend and just you know all these you know kids homeless kids essentially you know talking these truths that you know people are only now realizing in sort of mainstream society and it's like this is stuff that's been talked about in punk rock since since 76. yeah and here's the thing with that that's very very true um i mean in a way punk was a um a for i don't know how to say this but a um a fortune teller you know uh could see the future, you know? And when I uh, saw the kids in Decline 3 walking down 
the trendy street here in LA, Melrose, um, I stopped and talked to him and I said, I wanted to make a movie, The, uh, the Decline Part Three, right? And they go, no, you can't do that because Penelope Ferris has to do that. <laughs> and, I, <laughs> and I'm like, right on, well, that's me, so let's go. Um, and so it, what I noticed though, when I looked at them is they looked like they stepped right out of suburbia. Yeah. And when I, when I got to know them, I could see that their lifestyle was the lifestyle of the kids in suburbia. So I don't know if they saw the movie and then they did what they saw in the movie, or if somehow I was struck by lightning and I could see the future because uh, that's the way it is now. And it's becoming more and more like that, you know? Mm -hmm. No, I definitely, when I was watching it again, it really hit me how much it was life imitating art with, uh, the kids in, in three really felt like they were part of that same sort of like gang sort of structure of the kids in suburbia. Like it really, you know, I like, go on. I like to think about them as a family, as opposed to a gang. No, you're right. Sorry. I, 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 but I, I don't mean also gang necessarily in a negative violent oh. kind of sense. I mean, but more like the idea that like you have people coming they together for survival. Yeah. They, exactly. That's, that was the whole point. You know, as a matter of fact, right now out there in my, I, I bought this property. That's what I do now. I build houses, fuck the movies. <laughs> um, but uh, I got a, a guest house I'm rebuilding and, and eyeball from um, Decline 3 is out there working. You know, I've known the guy for 23 years and all those kids in Decline 3, they feel they're my family still, you know, mm -hmm. and I feel more uh, close to them and, and more emotional about everything that they do than I than I do with anybody I ever met in the film business, you know, in Hollywood here. I mean, there is no friends in, in Hollywood, you know, they're all just a bunch of lying, cheating assholes, you know? Yeah. Well, I, that's, and that's the thing I was thinking about the style of filmmaking that you do that I'm obviously very much trying to emulate. And it's almost like a compassionate outsider or an informed outsider kind of thing where you're still, you know, you're not like making a documentary from the fact that you're like in this world, you're, but you, you care about the subjects in a way that it's not, you know, I was, that's why I find it so hard to make these things because you can't really move on from the people you're covering afterwards. Like they do become part of your life and it's, yeah. and it's, and it's, it is such a amazing kind of way of making these, making documentaries because it combines, you know, the best of both worlds where you have that firsthand perspective, but at the same time, you also have that distance that allows you to kind of see the whole picture. Well, I like to make films that um, let you see the whole picture, like you say, but without having a, um, like a preaching kind of, this is the way your life should be, you know? Mm -hmm. It's like, it's not up to me to say how your life should be, you know? Like Michael Moore makes movies where he runs around talking about, you know, do it this way and, and trying to convince people this or that. And I usually agree with him, but I mean, it's, it's not, what the hell is he thinks he's God or something, you know? Yeah. I don't think that dude. Well, I, that's the thing. It's like, that's what I love about your style. Cause it's not the Michael Moore style where you're like in front of the camera and you become part of the story and it becomes yeah, right. about you, but I couldn't even, I couldn't even get in front of the camera, man. I hate it. But, but at the same time, because, you, because your voice is there, it's also not that like hand of God style documentary where, you know, yeah. they're interfering, but like, you don't see that ever happen. Yeah. Well, I just like to ask people 
you know, what, what makes them tick, what makes, you know, what makes their life uh, just, I don't know, like understand why in the beginning, why, why are you guys so pissed, you know, mm-hmm. um, you know, and that uh, Eugene is still my friend from, from decline one. Uh, yes. And, and uh, he's still pissed, you know, <laughs> <laughs> he's a good punk rocker, except he, he sings folk music now. Um, <laughs> Uh, but, um, you know, I just like to ask questions that I want to know. And, and I really, when I do these movies, Damien, I, I think it's more a study of human behavior than it is uh, a study about the style of music, you know. Mm-hmm. I just use the music as a backdrop, but um, it's, it's really given people um, a way to... Um, I think understand punk and and even that metal thing and the decline too. You know, um, that was a little silly, I have to admit. Um, but uh, you know, I mean, I'm glad that it gives people um, so, some sort of an identity. Which um, I mean, that's where I found my own identity. You know, I always say I was born a punk and I'll die a punk. You know. Yeah. No, absolutely. Um, I'm I'm jumping all over the over all over the place because there's so many things I want to ask you about. But do you consider we sold our souls for rock and roll? Kind of part of the decline series in some way because I I, I love that documentary too, and I'm, and I'm not a fan of that kind of music. But I just feel because once again, the way you kind of look at that subject matter because it ultimately, as you said, it's about the people. It, it kind of feels like it could be almost like the sequel to Decline Two. Yeah, people have suggested that, but the fact of the matter is, I I uh, did this movie with Sharon and Ozzy, and if the audience doesn't know, I'll let them know that it was a feature-length documentary of the Ozfest uh, tour in 1999, and there were, I believe, ten bands, uh, and it was. Um, you know, Sabbath and Rob Zombie and Slayer and Static X and Slipknot and Primus and various other bands. And um, it was quite an experience to do that. But at the end of the production and the editing process, um, I discovered that Sharon Osbourne, even though she said she had the rights to the music, she didn't have the rights to the music. So the movie never got released. And I worked on the damn thing for three years and I felt like an idiot and it never got seen, you know, I'm amazed that you saw it. That's pretty good. It, it uh, never got released at all. Never got, no. Wow. Never got a, uh-uh. I, I read it from a video think, store back in the nineties. So they definitely had some oh, weird bootleg. That's a bootleg, bro. <laughs> yeah, sorry um, about that. <laughs> no, no, please take it. Uh, put it back up there. You know, as far as I'm concerned, I love <laughs> people to see it. Sharon and Ozzy own, you know, that we we share ownership of it and uh, 50% each and um, they're 50%, I'm 50%. But mm-hmm. the fact of the matter is, I don't care about owning it. I don't care about making money on it. I just care about people seeing it, you know? Yeah. And, and I mean, I'd love it if people could see it before I die. But um, if if that doesn't happen, then what the then that's fine. But someday people will see that movie and it is a real um if i don't if you don't mind me saying so it really is a a time capsule of what 
you know, he heavy metal life was like back in those days. And it was whack, let me tell you. No, it definitely, it is like, there's so many incredible classic scenes in that movie, like the interview with the production staff and the roadies and, and uh, the stuff with Slipknot at the Washington Monument or all over mm -hmm. DC. Uh, that stuff is just iconic. And I think it is on the internet. So I think it is seeable um, in some capacity. I don't think you're going to be, unfortunately, kicked back any money for that. But uh, I don't want any money. No, I know you said that. No, so I, I feel that's why I can yeah. plug the internet with the bootleg copy out there because uh, I'm, buying it is my, I'm buying my cookies with my rent. You know, it don't, <laughs> it don't matter to me about making money on sold our sold i i cried so many tears over not getting that movie released let me tell you it was a it was just i had a nervous breakdown i think you know when i figured out it's really not going to be seen because i worked on it for so long and so hard and it's so good so good and, yeah and then you know to not have it seen is just heartbreaking you know and and uh, there was a time i think if sharon osborne was standing in front of me i would have um grabbed her around the neck and strangled her to death but um i'm not the only one <laughs> no and i think her i think her father would also have some people in line to do that to him too so it maybe runs in the family a little bit yeah he, he'd be dead right now but that's okay yeah um going back to kind of like what you talked about the decline too there is kind of a weird continuity though between that punk scene and that glam scene like obviously ricky rackman and like certainly wasted youth and a bunch of bands that would kind of cross over did you see any continuity at the time between the sunset strip the second sort of or the sorry the glam scene that came out on the sunset strip and the punk scene prior to it well you know they're actually polar opposites if you ask me you know i mean mm -hmm. everything that the glam scene did was was really uh, kind of a reaction to the punk scene and the punk scene if if you look at it like like every one of these music movements are a reaction to what was going on just before them because when punk happened you got to remember it was like very conservative almost like leftover from the 50s conservative um where where punks were just interested in tearing down tradition and changing everything you know mm -hmm. not just now here comes the cops. Uh, <laughs> not just tearing down um, music and you know getting rid of um, of um, guitar solos and uh, melodies and that sort of thing, but but it was it was interested in 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 tearing down all kinds of, of behavior and attitudes and and you know I mean the Sex Pistols had it right in the beginning I think you know mm -hmm. and. And that is just fuck it all, tear it all down. Um, I'm not saying I uh, think uh, Johnny Rotten is a hero at this point in life. Uh, I think he's kind of a nutwad, but um, you know, that's uh, his problem. Um, so I don't know. I mean, it, uh, punk rock, uh, you know, was a reaction to that. And then the glam scene was a reaction to punk rock because you know, punk was sort of embraced ugliness, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Or em, em, embraced the opposite of that makeup hair scene that uh, glam uh, was. And luckily I think glam didn't stick around all that long. Um, it's really kind of an immature teenage kind of identity if you ask me. And, you know, sooner or later we all gotta grow up, you know, <laughs> but I, um, I, I purposely um, 
was able to get Megadeth in on uh, the tail end of that movie there. Guns N' Roses um, was, was, they were going to do it, but then their manager pulled him out at the last minute, but um, could have killed the guy. He must know Sharon Osbourne. Uh, <laughs> and, <laughs> those English bastards. Um, anyway, uh, so I, you know, um, the, the decline too, it was a little more glam than I would have liked to have made it, but I wasn't paying for that movie myself. I paid for the decline three myself with the money I made off the Weinstein uh, fiasco that I did in the late nineties. But anyway, so I didn't pay for decline two, So I didn't have a lot to say about, uh, I didn't have the final word on uh, who was going to be in the movie, you know, what would you have done if you did? Would it have been like more like the bands that were in suburbia or like what, what kind of bands? More, more thrash or more, yeah. more hardcore bands, you know? That's what I'm interested in. Mm-hmm. But um, it, you couldn't deny the power of that short-lived glam scene on the strip. You couldn't deny it because it was, I mean, you could see in the movie, it was just like people spilling out into the streets, you know? Yeah. And so that's what was happening at the time that I was able to uh, get somebody to finance the second decline. So I also love like reading your films almost like it's almost like what the city of Los Angeles does to youth. And so you're telling that story more than you're telling like the history of punk or anything like through all these different movies. Yeah, it's uh, and, you know, people ask me, go go make a movie on the East Coast. And and it's like, I don't know the East Coast, you know, I know the West Coast and I'm not going to do. I'm not going to do a movie about the Jersey Shore because I don't even know what the hell it looks like, you know? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. What, uh, what you know, once again, like a lot of people that come on the show talking about the era of decline um, versus kind of the era that you're just, that you're documenting in suburbia or, you know, telling the story of in suburbia in the background, um, that there was like a real defined shift and you had like the people from kind of the mask era and then you have people that are more kind of the beach kids kind of coming in. Um, yeah. And a lot more violence kind of coming in too. Did you notice that shift happening? Oh yeah, it was pretty obvious. You know, the it was mostly the. Um, I mean, I think if I had to just say where was hardcore born, um, I would say it was born in Hermosa Beach because that's where all those that's where Black Flag, Circle Jerks, Descendants came from. You know, mm-hmm. that that area around Hermosa, and there was actually one defining moment in 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 uh this place called Pollywog park where all the um little families used to go and sit and have uh picnics and black flag set up a makeshift stage and played out there one day and just tore it up you know and um people were throwing sandwiches at them and everything else it was that moment i think when when um, Greg Ginn and Chuck and uh, was actually uh, Keith Morris was a singer uh, at that point. Yeah. And um, I think that was kind of the moment around here where uh, hardcore was born. And did you kind of notice like friends that you had or people that were around <laughs> kind of not, not down for that shift and like, were like, was there like kind of a drop off in, in people that were around between the two scenes? Cause well, you- it- you know, punks embraced, I believe, uh, on the ones I did, embraced the hardcore movement, you know. Um, I think that the, the, the kind of territorial gang mentality thing happened between metal, 
you know, the Sunset Strip metal and not necessarily the glam metal, but, but you know, the Metallica, the, the Megadeth kind of um, uh, Slayer type metal. Mm-hmm. That, when, when that came in, uh, you know, there was, there, there were like p- fights in the parking lots, you know, and, and that was kind of disappointing, you know. Absolutely. Well, but you also have people once again come on here, like Fat Mike from No Effects talks about like, you know, it, uh, like how violent these suicidal shows that he went to were, or, you know, Circle One or all these sorts of like, the you know, once again, it kind of like, it is more of a gang thing than a family thing that's emerging in some places with some of these, you know, kids around these bands. Yeah, and it was a real uh, boy thing too, yeah. you know, so, and a lot of the skaters were involved, but, um, you know, uh, I think, what is it? Jeans. I don't, I don't normally quote Gene Simmons, although <laughs> I, do, I do like the guy. Uh, I know a lot of people don't, but I like Gene. Uh, and um, he said that um, uh, the digital technology, the technology, the internet murdered uh, music. And, and I, I think that's, that's right on, you know, because before that, dawn of digital technology music was kind of in categories and easy to define and you could say you like this kind or that kind and now it's like a plate of spaghetti you know Mm -hmm. what I mean it's like everything is all mixed up and nobody and and what gets me are the people that that when you say to them hey what kind of music are you into everything is the answer (laughs) and I'm like well then you don't know who the fuck you are you know (laughs) Anyway. Were there any bands that you uh, wanted to document in suburbia or feature in suburbia that you weren't able to, or just, you know, for whatever reason? In suburbia? Um, well, like I said, uh, it was, it was for both suburbia and the first decline. I, there were a lot of bands I wish I could have uh, documented because see, not everybody had an iPhone back then and not everybody was shooting or very few people were shooting. And I'm glad I was able to film the ones that I could. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, like I said, the gun club, uh, the, the weirdos, screamers, plugs, they were all bands that I really wish I could have shot because they were great bands. And, uh, you know, like Jeffy Lee Pierce didn't, from the gun club didn't stick around that long. So I really wish I would have filmed his band, you know? Um, and the ones that, you know, what's funny is, is like of all the, the bands that are in the movies, um, there's only one person that ever thanked me for putting them in the decline or suburbia. Really? Yeah. <laughs> Who's the one yeah. person? Keith Morris from the Circle Jerks. Uh, Uncle Keith, we call him around this house. He's a, a good friend. So that is great. Oh, to really? Hear. Yeah, absolutely. He's actually, yeah. your episode's coming out after his episode. It's like kind of, he's your oh. lead in. Right on. Well, Keith, I think was, uh, I'm 90% sure is only, no, I'm a thousand percent sure is the only person that has ever thanked me. And you know, about X, they don't even like the way they are portrayed in the decline. But I will say this, that a couple of years ago, the film was inducted into the Library of Congress National Film Registry. Mm-hmm. And um, that's a pretty high honor. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. uh, So all those people that didn't thank me, um, (laughs) I'd like to ask them who the hell else is going to get you in the Library of Congress? (laughs) 
But I don't care. I don't really need any thanks. Fuck them. No, that it's it's also like, you know, from the fact that you had to shoot all those bands on that sound stage, you know, like just so much of like the way you shot that movie, the way people are portrayed, you know, it's as we were talking about earlier with suburbia kind of dictated the way punks acted because that was yeah. the way they saw it, you know, like, Oh, okay. I know they emulated the movie and, and, and that's fine. You know, uh, as a matter of fact, I'm, I'm glad to be able to spread the word, you know? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, did you, what about the Mau Mau's? Because obviously the, the gentleman from the Mau Mau's is in the third movie. Did, were you a fan of them or did you see them back in the day when they were? Oh yeah. I absolutely loved the Mau Mau's. Are you kidding me? Talk about entertaining. And Rick Wilder is, um, such a special person. He's, he's really, such a, a a sweet gentle wonderful guy and you know he's trashed his body okay yeah right but i mean talk about having that rock and roll look look at mm -hmm. this guy you know <laughs> he he he's um there was one point where i think i between boyfriends where i thought hmm, what about rick wilder for a boyfriend and then i went no 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 too many drugs too many drugs <laughs> I, but he's uh he's a cool guy and the Mau Mau's I wish um you know would have would have done more in the their career but you know didn't happen well I, I find his presence in the third decline is just so important almost as like a kind of like a a thing to come look for some of these kids you know like he, he provides like a you know like a future thing for the audience when they're watching oh, the movie. A, a warning yeah, too yeah you know, it's like the it, drugs are a dead end street, you know, and and you can go down that road for a while, but there's no way it's going to turn out right unless you just stop, mm -hmm. you know, and um, yeah, Rick is a living example of that, you know, and I have a family member who's got the same problem and it's it's a really tragic situation. Um, and hopefully people can can look at him in that movie and go, I don't want to do that. But unfortunately, it's not something that comes out of logic. You know, um, I think drug addiction is um, is uh, mostly genetic and uh, somewhat environmental by people who have been hurt a great deal by by people that love them. But mostly, I think it's genetic. Yeah, well, that definitely comes across in the movie. Like, obviously, I 100% agree with you on the genetic component, but I think you know, like the, the, the abuse that these people have suffered um, in decline three that they're detailing. Like, I feel like it's a movie that parents should watch with their kids. Even like, it's, it really, uh, I don't know, like it really hit me now as a parent watching it again, like in a different way. They do. Parents do show it to their kids. As a matter of fact, like I said, the guy in Australia, you know, uh, is shows the movies to his kids and, and I know a lot of people that do just as sort of an instructional educational uh, tool. And um, I even got a, recently got a communication from Squid's son. You may remember Squid yeah, in who was uh, murdered by his girlfriend, uh, Spoon, mm -hmm. although she didn't go to jail because she was theoretically protecting herself from him or some crap. Uh, and, uh, you know, so I, I don't, um, I, I get a, I get an email from the son of Squid that he had with a different girlfriend and he's never really seen his dad, you know? Yeah. And so he wants to get a copy of Decline 3 so he can see his dad. Isn't that sweet? That is really sweet. No, it is a, uh, it is a really, you know, it's an unbelievably 
powerful movie. Was there, you know, Keith is the only person from the first decline. Was there thought of catching up with these other people or did you want to document this entire new kind of offshoot of punk rock that you were? Yeah, I just wanted to, I mean, there was a lot of material there for, yeah. enough to work with, you know, with just the, the, the new, uh, I almost said new wave. Can you believe it? <laughs> with that, <laughs> with that uh, reincarnation, yeah. yeah, with that reincarnation of punk in the late '90s, and you know, I mean, I think if I I want to do um, well, let's put it this way: I've already started shooting Decline Four, mm -hmm. and since I've been uh, building my editing room out there, I've put it away for a little bit, but I'm going to continue as soon as I can get back at it, you know, because mm -hmm. I think there's still a lot to be said. Yeah, no, definitely. And it's amazing how, you know, all three films, and then if you put in, you know, all we sold our souls as well, um, even suburbia, they all feel so different, you know, like they all have the same style and your voice, obviously, but at the same time, it's like really different worlds that you're kind of covering each time. You know, Damien, I feel as a filmmaker like I'm not going to make any more movies right now except two uh, small self-financed documentaries. Um, I had a career and I'm kind of glad it's over with, you know, that that kind of career where you got to listen to some asshole talking to you over your shoulder about how something should be shot you know i'm not doing that shit anymore yeah. you know yeah um i did an interview lately where i i think i had a couple of beers and i said hollywood can blow me and um that that term went all over the internet and people <laughs> magazine and everywhere else so might as well say it on your show but um i don't miss it at all you know, and, and I really feel kind of stupid that at some point in my life, I, I made it my identity to be a Hollywood film director. What a bunch of jive shit, you know? But kind of at the peak of that time, like, you know, 97, 98, you're also making The Decline 3. Like, what was it like kind of going from literally one side of Hollywood to the other in terms of socioeconomic it was an absolute necessity i had to go back and find my real self i had been working on a movie with the weinsteins and it was pure fucking hell mm -hmm. okay and i mean they didn't sexually abuse me but they meant they they psychologically uh and emotionally uh were just brutal man mm -hmm. um and they, they paid me a shitload of money. And uh, I mean, at one point, one of them said, um, we're going to get our money's worth out of you, you know, and it, they did. And but, the, but there was a time when I went, wait a minute, this isn't me. Um, I, I have to I have to stop doing this and go back to my roots and be who I am. And that's when I did the decline part three. And after that, my whole life changed. And that was 20 years ago. And uh, when I was on Decline 3, I met my boyfriend of 20 years or 22, actually. Congratulations. And, uh, he, thank you. He was a, a, a gutter punk and he's in the Decline 3. Um, he, and, uh, you know, he, he's, he changed my life and given me reminds me every day of what the true punk ethic is, you know, mm -hmm. you know, he doesn't want to be rich. He doesn't want to be famous. He wants to have integrity in his life. He's honest. And, and, um, 
you know, we live together in a, in a very kind of quiet, um, peaceful Zen way, you know, mm-hmm. and I'm so happy that I did the decline three if for no other reason than to have met sin, my boyfriend. And if you want to know what sin is, he says it's satanic uh, intellectual network, S-I-N. That's awesome. Uh, That's awesome. He's crazy. Yeah. What happened to the U.S. bomb? Wait, did, were the U.S. bombs shot for Decline 3? Because I noticed they're on the marquee. Oh, they, they were on the marquee and they really wanted me to shoot them. But, you know, we were shooting film then. And, you know, those they're very nice guys. But I couldn't shoot them because I didn't have enough film, yeah. you know, basically. Mm-hmm. And. And I feel bad about that. You know, that's another band I wish I would have shot, you know, but um, can't shoot them all, you know? Yeah. And Dwayne Peters would have been, you know, kind of like around that time of the suburbia kids, right? Like he would have been obviously skating around that time, but also he had a band, I think back then, even. What was it? Trying to remember what they were called. They're on the public service comp with like Red Cross and uh, all those bands. But anyway, I'm I'm blanking on the name. Those are the... the, uh the the hermosa bands yeah yeah like so but he would have been like kind of a one of the few extensions like where did you see any other people you kind of recognized that were holdovers from the older scene in that scene when you were doing the decline three uh no actually it, it was mostly um you know that that new group of punk kids and they were you know I, I call the movie suburbia for a reason is because they, all these kids were from the inland empire, which is the pure definition of suburbia, you know? Yeah. And it, it, it comes, you know, it comes from like total boredom and, <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, you got to spark it up a little bit and make life interesting, you know? Yeah, absolutely. No, it, it, it's a, uh, it's just uh, amazing how, you know, like then once again, that city changes and it's like these vibrant scenes every single time, but they're all completely different. Uh, for when you made the decline three, were those bands that were kind of all playing together or how did you decide which bands you were going to document in part three, in addition to all the people you were documenting as well? Well, I had, um, you know, I had certain friends actually that I wanted to put in the movie like uh, Kirsten from uh, Naked Aggression um, was and still is a very good friend. And uh, I just love um, the resistance, which is eyeballs band, you know? And so they, um, they were friends. I mean, before I started shooting the movie, I did my research by just going out and hanging out with them in their squats, you know? Mm -hmm. And yes, I did get bugs a couple of times, I will admit. Uh, And uh, yes, I did unfortunately see people OD and and I did see that lifestyle uh, very close firsthand, you know? And there was a time in Decline 3 after I shot that party at Darius's house where I went home and I just laid in the bed and couldn't sleep because I kept thinking about what a tragic life these people have. And, and, and I was just lying there crying. It was just such a horrible realization that these kids were out there on the street homeless. And you know what I did? I said, I have to do something. And I went and became a, a California licensed foster parent. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. That's- and, I, uh, yeah. I had six foster kids and uh not at the same time mind yeah, you. yeah they come and go 
but um, I loved them all. And I felt like at least I was able to give back a little bit, but you know, those kids are very, very damaged and they're damaged the same way uh, that the punk kids uh, are. It's just that they're not in the, in the system. Most of them age out at 18 anyway. Well, and, and, you know, it's, it's just amazing when you're hearing these stories of just, you know, and these people and you're like, are you sad? And they're all like, no, you know, like just how, how like how much they've gone through and how they've had to just kind of internalize it just to get through well that i think uh it it may be a function of age of their age mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. i think um people when they get older and they're in that same situation they are sad yeah um but there's such uh energy and vitality um to uh that that that, that youth has that it enables them to still be optimistic and positive about it. And um, that's kind of heartwarming, you know, but it's also sad in a way. In, in punk rock, you know, a lot, and this is once again, not to minimize the loss of these people at all, but like, you know, a lot is made about the death that happens during that first wave of, you know, in decline, you know, like Darby Crash, obviously, and, and Jeff Lee Pierce and Cloud Bessie and all these people. But like it's part when you're watching part three and by the time the movie's over, three people have passed away. And I can only imagine yeah. in the next few years what it was like. Yeah, I know. Uh, there were people that passed away uh, after the movie was finished. Like um, he calls himself Hamburger in the movie. Yeah, but the big guy. Yeah, Evil was his um, street name. Okay. that's That was love spelled backwards, by the way. Okay. Uh, and, um, you know, they did, they did uh, depart. But, you know, I mean, here's the thing. I, I always wave the punk flag and say that's the way I live. And I would suggest it if anybody wants a suggestion. Um, but there are people in that scene, too, that, you know, like, um, aren't that great. It's just like any cross-section of of uh, uh, a group of people, you know, mm -hmm. you get your good, you get your medium, you get your bad, you know, like, like, um, what's his name? Il Duce from the mentors. Yeah. What a dick, you know, I'm sorry. He's dead. He was an asshole. Yeah. Yeah. You know? I feel really weird, uh, saying somebody's an asshole when they died, but I, I can't stop myself, you know, cause he was. And I feel that same way about Bob Biggs from Slash Records because he was an asshole and he's dead. And it was so funny because lately he died and and everybody was calling me up and sending me emails and condolences and everything. I'm like, I don't give a shit, man. The guy was a dick. He was my boyfriend for seven years and all he did was fuck strippers and do coke. Fuck him. Well, I'm sorry about that. That um, you know. Oh yeah, I, it was hell. But you don't need to be sorry. It made me stronger. It, going back to El Duce for a second, I've always found it so fascinating that there's this group in Seattle that ready made Rubbermaids, I believe that they're called. And it's like Nikki Six, El Duce, and the people from the Screamers all playing together in Seattle in like 74 before. And really? it's like, I can't imagine those people even getting along, let alone being in a band together. The Screamers, which was Tomato to Plenty. Yeah, Tomato Nikki to Plenty. Six from, from the crew. And yeah. And um, and and the uh, Duce from the Mentors. Yeah, and then also the guy who went on to play. They must have. They must have went to the wrong club, man. That's <laughs> like, 
That's the only thing I can figure. They, they were supposed to go to some club. They all fucked up, went to the wrong club, and ended up playing together. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, and I think it's also the guy who played drums in the Blackouts and went on to play drums in KMFDM and ultimately REM. Uh, that was also playing drums in that group. So I think it was like, yeah, real, real signal cross kind of moment in Seattle that day. when they. Yeah, no, that's a chopped salad. Forget it. No, no. Uh-uh. I don't even <laughs> want to listen to that shit. Um, do, do you stay in touch with people from uh, all these movies? Like, were there people even in Decline 2 that you kind of, oh, obviously Ozzy, because you work with them again. But like, were there people that you found like you connections with out of all these films that you worked on? Well, I mean, um, Dave, I believe from from uh, Megadeth, we don't talk that much, but we'll always be soul brother and sister, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, Nader, DePriest uh, from London, and and I are friends, except for the fact that every time I talk to him, he keeps telling me that back in the day he wanted to take out my daughter, and I'm like, Nader, you don't say that to a parent, okay? <laughs> oh. No. No, you don't, just, you don't want to take out my underage daughter. I mean, she went out with Nikki Six. Anna went out with Nikki Six because my ex-boyfriend was pissed and set her up with him, you know. Mm. But um, that was a real bummer. Yeah. Um, I said to the guy, I go, um, I said, you, you want to take my daughter out? You can't stop when 17, 16, 17 years old, you know, they want to go out with a rock star. It's like real hard to stop them, you know. Mm. And uh, if you want to, uh, you know, take her out, you're going to have to come and meet the mom and, uh, and we'll talk about it. He goes, I don't like something you said about me. And I said, well, what I say? He said, you didn't want your daughter going out with a 40-year-old heroin addict. And I said, well, uh, how old are you, man? Because uh, we all know you're a heroin addict. <laughs> and... Uh, yeah, but she went out with him anyway, but it didn't last too long because um, she, could, she couldn't uh, get into all the clubs he was going to because she was underage. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, is there any sort of scene that you kind of were like aware of or seeing like the Paisley Underground or you mentioned that thrash stuff earlier that you would have loved to have documented or there was something else, but you were you know obviously very busy at this time? Well, I mean, I just took whatever job I could get, you know, and barely snuck in the documentaries in between. And I, I never like to look back and say, wish I would, I wish I could, I, you know, mm-hmm. to me, it's just water under the bridge. You want to hang yourself from fuck it. You know, I just, I don't give a shit. Uh, so I, I don't go, Oh, I wish I would. I, I never do that with my life. And I think it's such a pointless way to think. So no, I, I did I did whatever, um i uh i was supposed to do i think you know yeah well and it's like you know when, like as as one of the many people that were so it's like what you did was not just document stuff create art but also like you know it's an essential kind of um you know visual representation of music you know like i think if i was still showing people like something about punk rock and I had to show them a movie i'd still show them the decline well, thank you for saying that, but you, you probably aren't going to believe this, but it's true. And that is, I don't really feel like I did what I should have done in life, you know, and I guess that relates to your last question, too, because I should have been making movies like Suburbia the whole time. But Wayne's World came along. I did that movie. 
And then once that movie went through the roof, I couldn't do any other kind of movies, you know, with the yeah. studios. I was the comedy queen, you know? <laughs> yeah. And so then I had to do the Beverly Hillbillies. And then, I mean, I didn't have to, but when they offered you $2 million, you kind of go, well, I guess I can't make the movies I want to make. So I'll take the $2 million and go do that, you know? Yeah. Well, I don't, I do not blame you on that one at all. Well, I mean, and I, 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 I would have, I have a lot of friends who made the movies they wanted to make and they're broke. And one of them's living in his car. You know what I mean? So I have to be thankful for that. And I don't mean to be griping and complaining because I, you know, hear nice things from people like you about the movies that I did do. And, um, you know, I just have to accept it is what it is. And I, I did what I did and I can't do anymore. So, I mean, I'm, uh, movie industry has changed so much, Damien, right now that I don't even want to be a part of it anyway. Yeah. Well, I think, I think, you know, you're, you're a true auteur and, you know, your films have a style and a, and a feel and a look, and you're fighting through misogyny at a time when, you know, you talk about the Weinsteins, like Hollywood sounds like it was a, the worst, you know, I don't know. I wasn't there, but it sounds fucking horrific. And, it was uh, horrific. It was horrific. And the thing is, I didn't even realize at the time, I'm just going, oh, this is a hard job. If, and, and guys that I knew this, you know, they were in the business. It was a hard job for them too, yeah, you know, yeah. but I didn't realize just how much harder it was because I was a woman. And, and um, you know, I mean, I've, I've suffered through the, you know, Bob Weinstein, like making fun of me and laughing at me and shit, you know, I mean, fuck those guys, you know, um, I, I <laughs> that Harvey's in a rotten jail and, you know, let yeah. him rewrite the ending of that movie, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, one thing I want really wanted to ask you about because I, I'm I worked in a video store and I'm obsessed with this movie from of way back when. Of course you did. Uh, <laughs> of course, you know it's, it's not apparent before. It should be oh, by now. Of course you did. <laughs> um, what, what in Naked Angels are those real bikers? Hell's Angels. Yeah, dude. That you you really got the um, the itty bitty uh, info here. Yes, I did a movie in 1967 with Roger Corman, and I was acting in it. And Corman, a thrifty man that he is, uh, hired a group of uh, Hell's Angels to wrangle the choppers. Okay. Yeah. And so we were out, and I'm going to tell you this story, and then I got to go because I got to wrangle some uh, some um, uh, contractor dudes out there, um, carpenters. Yeah, but we he he sent us out to the desert with this with his bunch of bikers, and uh, one of the actors gave uh, acid to uh, everybody, and uh, one of the uh, uh, old ladies they call them of the bikers uh, flipped out on acid, so the biker comes up behind the actor and slugged him upside the head with a tire iron. And I'm sitting there on acid looking at this with blood spurting up into the sky with all these stars behind it, you know? <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I know. And um, yeah, so to answer your question, yes, Roger Corman hired real uh, Hells Angels to wrangle the bikes. And yes, the actor got his head split open. And yes, we were all on acid out in the desert with no water to drink because Roger's very thrifty. Um, <laughs> and that was my, uh, that was my beginning there. Uh, that's when I decided I was going to be behind the camera instead of on the camera, you know? 
Uh, well, thank you so much for this. Anytime you want to come back for a part two, please know anytime you are, oh, please. So uh, thank you for everything. Okay. Thank you, Damien. Love you. Bye. Thank you, Penelope, for coming on the show. And if she will ever come back for a part two, oh my gosh, I got so many more questions. That's that's the problem when you're interviewing someone like this. There's just so many places to go. You know, I could interview her for the entirety of the interview, just about decline of Western civilization part one. But I'm like, no, no, no. I want in all these things. I want in all these things. So hopefully she'll be back for a part two at some point and I can uh, get to some of the questions I didn't get to ask. You know, like, did she ever see the dead boys with Belushi drumming? How did I forget to ask that? Anyway, next week on the show. I am joined by another legend, another legend from a completely different uh, punk scene and, and time frame in punk rock, but someone I've always wanted to talk to next week on the show, author of the brand new book, Mutations, Sam McFeeters, lead vocalist of Born Against, uh, writer, editor, a publisher of Dear Jesus Fanzine. From Vermiform Records, from Men's Recovery Project, from Wrangler Brutes, from Maximum Rock and Roll Columns. Like, he is a legend. A legend! And we get into all of it. This is a, this is a really fun one. And that is on the next episode of the show. Remember, as always, Black Lives Matter. The lives of Indigenous people matter. And we need to protect the lives of trans people and trans kids. Uh, go out there right now, get informed, sign petitions, donate money, do whatever you can. Also, go out there and make your own culture. It really does help. It can help with your mental health. Um, put yourself out there, help contribute, make a zine, start a band, start a fanzine. I know all this stuff is kind of kind of up in limbo in the time that I'm recording this, but there are things you can do, and there are things you can do at home that, you know, it'll, it'll help. That will help with the mental stuff. I promise you from personal experience. Um, you don't have to show it to anyone either, you know, make a zine just for yourself. You know, they're fun. And you know, you'll look back on it and be like, I made a zine five years ago. Here it is. And show people if you want, if you want to sign your organ donor cards, because by the time they come looking for those organs, you're not going to need them. Just, you know, give them to, uh, give them to someone who does at that point, you know, sign your organ donor cards, uh, and also uh, wear a mask, you know, and this week, most importantly, and I'm going to start doing this every week because, you know, I, I love doing this podcast every time. Check out Oil and Flowers with my friend, my buddy, my, 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 my teacher, my, my, the guy who's driving the motorbike and I'm just in the sidecar, Buddha Blaze. Uh, we talk about cannabis. We talk about all sorts of fun stuff on that show. It's mainly just cannabis. Like, you know, comes up, sometimes we slip into other areas of conversation, but no, it's generally pretty much just focused on cannabis. But if you like cannabis though, it is a great podcast. They have their, well, we have our own feed over there at Oil and Flowers. Uh, check it out. Buddha always has a great interview on that thing too. And I learned something. Every time we do it, I learn from Buddha. Buddha is, uh, you know, he's, he's my uh, teacher. He's my teacher on the, uh, on the uh, path to growing my own cannabis that I'm on right now. It's legal here, but that's why we're doing it. So there you go. That is it for the show. Stay safe, and I will see you next week. Love you. Bye.